Hi there, this is Ken Roundy at USH Med Student. I have uh, two medical students with me and one pre-med student with me. Uh, let's start with introductions. We'll start with the, um, the sidekick on the show. Chase? Yeah, I'm Chase Zaremba, third year medical student at Rocky Vista. And we've got two stars of the show today. I'll have you both introduce yourselves in some uh, somewhat more depth. Let's start with you, Carl. Tell me a little bit about who you are, where you're going in school right now. Uh, name's Carl Ketchum. I'm a third year medical student at RVU. Um, right now, just finishing up that third year and trying to make the decision on uh, psychiatry or being a general practitioner. So, what? I don't know. We, we worked really hard to find a quiet room, and maybe it's not as quiet as we thought. Uh, Carl, good to have you. You were here with us on a podcast yesterday. Yuri put together a podcast on mindfulness, and uh, I think this is a fascinating follow-up to that. We're moving from one of the psychotherapies to one of the, uh, I think, more in-depth science topics that we might tackle during a rotation. Daniel, you're the person that is kind of the heart of this project starting. Tell us a little bit about you, who you are, and where you're headed. Yeah, my name is Daniel Bellingham. I graduated in finance from BYU, made the switch to pre-med over the last couple of years after um, spending time in New York and not necessarily appreciating um, the path I was going on. And so um, I've been shadowing here for a while with Dr. Roundy because I'm really interested in psychiatry and also in pediatrics. And that was really the reason why we chose this topic today. It's because it takes my job as a plasma processor and fuses it with pediatrics and psychiatry. Yeah. We were talking about this a little bit, and Daniel, I, by the way, Daniel's really underselling his uh, history. I think Carl also has a history. You guys both have some fascinating stories behind you. Carl was a bench researcher at one point doing some uh, work in Alexander Gate Technique, if yeah, I remember right. Yeah, Alexander Technique, uh, biomechanics uh, research, worked in a biomechanics lab in uh, San Francisco, uh, the Murray Lab, hi Kate, uh, miss you. Um, just really interesting stuff. Uh, focused primarily on um, elder, elderly, older adult gate. So. Some fascinating stuff about how, uh, in the research that you published, how gate might prevent cognitive decline? Definitely. Um, there's also, I think one of the more exciting things about the Alexander technique as far as uh, what we found was that it seems to mitigate the, the effects of aging on gait. So when we looked at the kinematics, for instance, the gait, um, the, the actual joint angles, we actually found that uh, they walked more like the younger adults that we had put them against. And and this is compared to very, very healthy older adults. I don't want to go too far in all that research, but if you ever want to ask me, I'll talk to you here. We'll often. put a quarter in you. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. right. I think uh, somebody who is uh, generally pretty careful about what they say, Daniel, I think you were with me seven or eight months before I had any idea that you had been in uh, financial arenas in New York City. Is that something you want to expound on just a little bit more? Yeah. So. After I graduated from BYU, I actually went to work for Goldman Sachs in New York um, doing investment banking. Um, so I was primarily focused. Um, I was in the sponsors M&A group, which meant I primarily work with financial sponsors. For those of you who don't know, um, those are private equity firms largely. And I would help them with M&A, which is uh, buying and selling companies. Um, so yeah, I I spent a lot of time in the healthcare sector as well as the waste environmental sector. So if you have any questions about trash or sewage or waste or any of that and want to understand the industry, I don't know who would, but 
I, I can talk here all about that. <laughs> Interestingly enough, one of the jobs I had before I ended up in medicine was at a wastewater treatment plant. So maybe you and I have common ground. I think the difference was my paycheck was uh, under $10 an hour at the point I was doing that. And I think yours was a little more than that. With how many hours I worked, it might have been under $10 an hour. <laughs> you, you mentioned the number of hours that you were working, and it was one of the reasons you were hoping to make some changes. But I think you said you just didn't feel necessarily happy with the decision you'd made either. Yeah, the, the hours actually never bothered me. I feel like now, as a pre-med student, I'm putting in just as many hours doing different things. <laughs> um, but doing 100 the hours a week of things that you don't necessarily enjoy, that, that's when it gets tough. Your father is a physician. Correct. At one point, you gave me the idea that you ran away from medicine so that you were different than dad. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, now I'm running back into my dad's arms, I guess. <laughs> I don't know that you said it that way, but I think you found a different pathway that you liked more. You felt like maybe one was a choice of not that way, and now one is a choice of this is what I'm passionate about. Yeah, that's true. I, I've Even when I was in New York, I spent a lot of time reading um, psychology and psychiatry literature. Um, that's most of the books that I read because I just find it fascinating. And so um, deciding that I wanted to pursue that course instead of doing family practice like my dad is what really um, allowed me to make that jump. One of the things I don't talk to enough, I talk to my students about enough, and yet I try to, is that medicine is not one field. You can find a lot of different jobs in medicine. It's a great, it's a great entryway into so many different fields, not just the type of medicine. So you're talking about the difference between family practice and psychiatry. I think there's also fairly dramatic differences between the types of practices that people find themselves within. And, and I often tell my students, don't buy a house the first place you land. Wait until you know you love the place you're at, you love the job you have. And if you don't love the job and you love what you're doing, find a different place, right? And if you find you're not happy, it's pretty hard to change your specialty, but it's not hard to change where you live. And I, I've mm -hmm. tried to talk to students about being more flexible with that. So, uh, Normally we talk about a few high yield things uh, leading into the podcast. We will not do that at this podcast. Instead, we're going to talk a little bit about a number of neuropsychiatric symptoms that overlap and, and the evolution of pans and pandas. Now, Daniel, when we talked about this, we were talking about, hey, let's, let's as we're building a letter of, of recommendation, let's, let's pull something in that the people that are interviewing you can talk about, mm -hmm. that you can stand at the plate and it's batting practice, right? You're a big poppy and you're smacking balls over the fence. And, I'm a Yankees uh, fan, unfortunately, so uh, I don't appreciate the reference. Uh, let me Aaron try Judge. that again. Uh, you are uh, Babe Ruth. Okay. He was a Red Sox player only for a few years, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so apologies for the uh, for the uh, Anaheim Angels reference. I think was where he was at last, right? And and so um, I said, what are you doing? What does it cross your path with? What is it you're passionate about? And kind of off the top of my head, there's this thing that's been hanging out there, which is pandas, and we're going to talk about that. One of the things I don't know anything about is plasma donation. Mm -hmm. But I think most medical students have some idea about it at this point in their lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have, have you guys both donated plasma? Oh, yeah. Sure have. Sure. First year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Needed to do it to get through. So, Daniel, what we'd like to hear is what it's like sitting on the other side of the plasma donation uh, portal. And, and tell, us, tell us what that is. Tell us what plasma is. Tell me how you get it. Just talk to us about plasma. Yeah, well, for sure. Um, 
<clears throat> I've actually done a lot of research into the plasma as I've worked in the center longer. Um, your layman, if you ask them as they're about to stick you with a needle, all these questions, I don't know if they can come up with the same answers. Um, but, but basically, plasma is, is around 55% of, of our blood. And so what we're doing when we donate plasma is you get poked with a needle into your um, AC area and that blood is being brought out, centrifuged at about 7,500 RPMs. Um, and then the machine keeps the plasma in a bottle and then returns the red blood cells to you. Um, and that way you can donate plasma twice a week rather than once every eight weeks like with red <laughs> blood cells. Um, and then most people know plasma is a good way to get cash, which, which it is. But um, what a lot of people don't realize about plasma is like how necessary it is um, for different medications and treatments. And um, I can just talk about a few of those. But um, Do. Yeah, the, 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 we're all yours. Oh, yeah. I'll just keep going. So first off, um, plasma, surprisingly, is about 92% water. And so that's why when you're about to donate plasma, we always take, tell people to be hydrated. Because um, if you're not, it takes a lot longer and you might be sent away. Um, I, I just want to point out that I, I wish I had video of this podcast. I, I've got uh, Chase and Carl nodding every time you say something. When we tell somebody who's coming in to do X, Y, and Z, they're nodding. Yep, I was told that. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Daniel. I'm sorry. I, I've interrupted. Yeah. So the, the 92.2% water, obviously that's not used in medications. It's the, it's the little things that really count. Um, so another 7% of the plasma contains vital proteins from our body, um, including albumin, gamma globulin, including all the other globulins, but apparently they're not as important, and anti-hemophilic factor. Um, and then the other 1% is, is salts, hormones, fats, etc. Um, and so that plasma effectively helps our body to maintain blood pressure, it supplies critical uh, proteins for blood clotting and immunity, carries electrolytes and helps us um, maintain the pH balance in our body. Um, without those things, it would be very hard to live. So it's, it's pretty important stuff. And so um, what we do with the plasma is after we take it from the donor, we immediately freeze it at negative 40 degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit. It's the same thing. Um, and we keep it there for as long as it needs to before we ship it out to a lab um, for them to convert it to various therapies and medicines. Um, and then the other thing we do is we take samples. And these samples are tested because obviously not every single person's plasma is um, appropriate for donations because different people have different issues that they're dealing with. And so after every donation, we're taking samples that test for the presence of viruses, um, bacteria, and also test for ALT levels, which, is, which stands for alanine aminotransferase. And what that's doing is effectively testing for liver disease. Um, can, I, can I ask an yes. interrupting question here? When you're talking about testing for viruses, I assume you're talking about like hepatitis C and HIV primarily. Correct. Okay. And, and have you ever been in a situation where somebody comes back to donate and there's a new flag on their, on their um, chart, so to yeah. speak, and you have to say, I hate to tell you this, but we can't take your blood, then what happens? Um, it actually happens quite often. Um, not super often, obviously, because not everyone has HIV. But 
Um, even if there's a false positive for HIV at our center, then they're deferred for life. So um, that's why if someone has a cold sore or has just gotten um, some kind of vaccine, we tell them not to donate um, until that's cleared up or a certain amount of time has passed because that false positive can yeah, put you on a permanent deferral list. It's the end. Wow. And then we, we encourage them to go see their doctor because our tests, like I said, we have false positives quite often. Um, they're not confirmatory, but we tell them to go talk to their doctor and, and figure things out. So you're running a highly sensitive test. In other words, you're picking up all cases and some that are not cases, and then you'll send out for the confirmatory. Correct. Okay. And, and if you had to say, does somebody say, um, why can't you take my blood? And you have to say, well, we get screened positive for HIV. Is that, have you been in that situation? Um, I have not been in that situation. Luckily, I'm not the person that has to tell them. I've heard that those are some of the toughest conversations you have, um, especially when you have um, BYU students who claim that they're virgins and have no chance of ever contracting certain, um, yeah, sexually... Uh, transmitted disease, yeah. I was trying that's to think it. of the new term. STI, essentially. Um, STI. Yeah. STI. Wow. All right, so uh, go ahead. You were, uh, before I interrupted, I think you were talking about some of the conf the uh, tests that are done to ensure the safety of the uh, of the samples. Yeah, so we, we perform those tests after every donation, and then there's some that we um, test um every three or four months, and those are testing for ATYAs, which is atypical antibodies. And so those undergo an indirect Coombs test, and that's testing for alloantibodies or atypical antibodies. Um, and those are usually produced by the body's immune system in response to foreign red blood cells. The most common case we'll, where you'll see them is pregnancy, um, where the, the fetus's blood doesn't match. Um, the RH of the, the mother. Hmm. It's like the real world application of things that we learned in a medical school. <laughs> um, so we, you, you mentioned some of the things that the uh, plasma does in our body. Tell me a little bit about some of the things that kind of everybody knows about that plasma is used for. Yeah, so plasma is used for a lot of different types of treatment. Um, one of them we're gonna talk about today. It's a lot more niche. Um, but the main things that it's used for are hemophilia and other bleeding disorders, um, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, um, primary immunodeficiency diseases, um, and then it's also used to treat burn, shock, trauma, major, sur uh, major surgery. Um, like I said earlier, the RH compatibility during pregnancy, uh, cardiopulmonary issues, organ transplants, pediatric HIV, hepatitis, liver conditions, animal blights. And lastly, autoimmune diseases, which kind of transitions into what we're talking about today. So let's talk about uh, Dr. Suido. Go back to 1998. I think everybody read this article, right? We, there, there were like 70 articles that we pulled together. I think everybody tried to read a lot of articles. I think we tried to get the best uh, picture of this that we could. Um, tell me about the Suido article, Daniel. Yeah, so in 1998, um, Suido, he saw some recurring cases in children, and um, it, was, it was cases that were very similar to Sydenham's Korea, but he thought that there was something more to it. Um, that, <clears throat> I guess, so he defined five um, criteria that separated 
this idea of pandas. That was what the whole research study was about um, from Sydenham's Korea. All right, so I'm going to jump in really quickly. Pandas, pediatric, autoimmune, um, psych, oh, neuropsychiatric disorder associated with streptococcal infection. Very good. And now I'm also going to jump in and, and have Chase, I'm sorry, not Chase, Carl, talk about uh, Sydenham's Korea. Yeah, so Sydenham's Korea is an involuntary uh, movement. It can be um, something as small as uh, fidgeting uh, to something as large as actually moving an arm. Um, it's something that's done involuntary, and it's usually showing up after um, uh, strep infection. Um, it's thought to be an autoimmune reaction. Um, so Now, uh, there seems to be a tie between Sydenham's Korea and anti-strepsilisin antibodies, right, ASO titers. Did you find anything about that at all? Uh, to be completely honest, um, I did. There, there is some, yes, there is some. And I think this is going to come up later. So I, I spent, I don't know, an hour and a half one afternoon, I think, trying to sort out all of the autoimmune neurological or autoimmune neurologic antibodies that can be tested. I think the best one I found was uh, Quest Diagnostics. They mm -hmm. had a tremendous list of these, right, and, and uh, a list of about 20 autoantibodies that they were able to identify. Right. And yet, I don't think I found very many of the ones that we have listed or that we're going to be talking about here. So I do think that ASO is pretty closely associated with Sydenham's Korea. And I think this is where some of the discussion comes in, right? So we're going to go back to Suido. Suido uh, saw this thing pop up and said, hey, we're going to try and figure out more. And then where did Suido go from there? Yeah, so he um, took a study of a bunch of kids. He took them from, um, I believe it was the Tourette's Association at the time, um, that were having... Um, Ideally, they would have all had these markers, um, but a lot of them actually weren't tested um, for the strep uh, titers. And so he, anyone who had signs of a, a pharyngeal um, infection, infection right. or yeah. anything that might be strep, anything yes. that might be strep, he just he took those kids and looked for acute onset of OCD and tick symptoms. Yeah. I think he started with the acute onset of OCD but then noticed that there was this association of ticks, but I could be wrong. Did anybody have more information on that? I, I believe that you're correct. I believe that you're correct. And, and I think the reason why, and, and again, I'm not entirely sure about this, is he sent out this mailer, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. And he said, hey, we're looking for this acute onset symptoms. Right. Um, now it says ticks in some of the notes we have here, but anyway, I'm looking for this acute onset of ticks right. and, and OCD. And this mailer went out, and one of the biggest contributors to, uh, what was it, uh, 75, how many how many children came in from that? Does anybody remember? I don't have that number right yeah, in front of me. Yeah, I don't have the right number right in front of me. Yeah, so anyway, a whole bunch of people came in, um, but there was this disproportionate representation from the local uh, Tourette syndrome, like, support group. Mm -hmm. And so we, we now have a diagnosis. As they, as they looked at these people, they sent out the mailer, they looked at the children that were brought in, and they said, okay, what are the characteristics of these children? Right. They kind of came to these two symptoms, right, which mm -hmm. were largely the, the OCD symptoms and then the, uh, some, some OCD stuff that 
I think the way that I read the article, the Swedo article originally, was that sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between what is a compulsive behavior mm-hmm. and what is an abnormal movement that is related to Sydenham's Korea. Does that sound right to everybody else as yeah. well? Mm-hmm. Yes. So so they, they said, okay, we think that most of the kids have OCD, but even more have tick disorders. And... Um, you know, there's a few more boys than girls, mm-hmm. and we also see some other things like ADHD and affective changes. I think they listed affective disorders, but as we read, this story evolves, right? Mm-hmm. Now, they, they did say, here's the criteria, and and the, the criteria were very specific. Uh, does one of you have that, that criteria that you want yeah. to kind yeah. of go through? So the five criteria, the first was the presence of OCD and or tic disorder. The second was a pre-pubertal symptom onset, and that definition is uh, from three years old to the beginning of puberty. Um, The third was an episodic course of symptom severity. Uh, That's described as a dramatic symptom exacerbations, explosion of severity, uh, decrease significant, and then sometimes they end up resolving, or there's a sawtooth pattern, as they describe it. Uh, the fourth was associated with uh, group A, uh, beta hemolytic strep infection. Uh, this was interesting, positive throat culture and or elevated uh, antibody titers. Um, this one continues to evolve later on. Um, it was interesting, several days to weeks later. Um, some could even appear months later. Um, and then also five was an association with uh, neurological abnormalities. Um, which they said is distinct from chorea and uh, which would suggest, uh, they, they said that any signs of chorea would suggest uh, Sydenham's chorea. So, so chorea and Sydenham's chorea, I yeah. think. I hear it more often, chorea, yeah. whether that's the right, yeah. go, go to Georgia, you'll hear it differently probably, go right. to Massachusetts, you'll hear it differently. Right. Um, so, so there's this huge buy-in. I remember being in medical school and everybody's talking about pan, well, 98, I would have been just at the end of, tail end of medical school, so I would have been on third and fourth year rotations. I would go to residency and everybody's talking about pandas. And yet there are a few people that say, eh, I'm not so sure. Right. Marcelo and Martino are a couple of authors that I think write one of the most compelling cases for, guys, back up and let's be a little stronger in terms of how we define this. And uh, tell me, who, who wants to talk about Martello and, or Marcelo and Martino's article? Um, well, I, I could talk a if little bit about it. nobody does, I can. <laughs> you, you guys, I've thrown it out to you guys and made you do all the heavy lifting so far. Um, I mean, if you would like to, I, I have a, a written up here. but Yeah, so so my take home, and yeah. maybe what I'll do is just give my take home and yeah. you can kind of add to it. Yeah. Um, I think they said a couple of things. I think they said, first of all, this is just Sydenham's Korea. Right. You can't prove to me that this is really different because if you go back and look at the way that Osler described this way back when, or if you look at the way that some of the people in the 60s were describing this, it's not like they don't talk about um, psychiatric or neuropsychiatric symptoms, right? Right. It's not devoid of this. We see children who who have uh, difficulties with their emotions, with Sydenham's Korea. We've always known this. You're You're making up something new. Right. Does that sound about right? Sounds about right. And then they say, but not only that, your science is crappy. Yeah. I think they said mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yes, they did. They no, said they did. They went through and they... You can't prove that the people you're tying this to actually had strep infections. Right. Right. And so we see a couple of things that pop up later. I think Suido continues to try and demonstrate with better data, I think probably responding to 
criticism of her own data and external criticism. I think she has another study. He or she, I think he or she um, has another study somewhat later where they comment on on how hard they actually worked to make sure that they were identifying children with uh, uh, group B uh, hemolytic strep prior to onset of these symptoms. Right. And and I think there's enough enough disagreement and enough agreement that everybody comes together and I want to say it's in about 2012 there's a pandas consortium yeah mm-hmm. and they say we're done with pandas right we're changing this in part because we have a lot of difficulty identifying uh, the infection mm-hmm. and because we think that the way we've defined this is probably incorrect now that we've been looking for this as explosive onset of OCD, we think there's something different going on. Right. So, so a couple of different articles pop out at this point. One is the Sweeto article in 2012. Singer 2012 is also there. And tell me where they go. Daniel, you want to pick this one up, or do you want to tag team this one over to uh, <laughs> Carl? I'll tag team and jump in um, as he's going. Okay. Uh, so Sweeto, uh, basically, uh, after all of this, there was questions about the research, and they had to change it a little bit. They come to this idea of uh, PANS. Now, um, basically, the argument was is that the, the syndrome is, is pretty uh, heterogeneous, but there are some things that are um, actually... Um, more common. Yes. So what, what it was was the abrupt uh, dramatic onset of OCD again, uh, severely restricted food intake, and then also, also uh, additional uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms is what they came down to, uh, two of the following. Anxiety, emotional lability and or depression, irritability, aggression, and or severely oppositional behaviors, behavioral regression, deterioration in school performance, sensory or motor abnormalities, somatic symptoms, including sleep disturbances, enuresis, or urinary frequency, and symptoms that are not better explained by another neurological or medical disorder. Mm-hmm. Now, I think Suedo, uh, in the original paper in 98, felt like maybe the dose of, uh, of group B might have determined the severity of the syndrome. Right. I think it seems like they stepped away from that and just said, hey, we don't know exactly what's causing this anymore. We think that it might be uh, molecular mimicry on some level. It could be a lot of other things. We think that there are some places in the brain where that are maybe affected. We're going to talk about those in a moment. Um, and so, so I think they stepped away from that to this syndromic approach of there's something here and we think it's autoimmune and we're going to keep chasing it. Does that sound about right? Yes. And I think the argument was that with PANS, which is pediatric... Um, acute onset. Acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome. Mm-hmm. And CANS, childhood acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome. So PANS and CANS, again with PANS being 3-2 uh, puberty and mm-hmm. CANS being... Maybe different and maybe the same. <laughs> we never found that. We're, we're never sure we found the answer to that. Um, th- that they had a broader ability to maybe define the syndrome. But I think the thing that was most striking about this change from pandas to cans was that ticks really moved way down mm-hmm. in terms of the frequency of identification and this eating disorder kind of thing popped mm-hmm. way up. Mm-hmm. Does that sound kind of like what you guys were reading as well? Yes. Yeah. And it was interesting, too, um, hearing the other things that could um, cause PANS. Um, because PANDAS was originally 
uh, limited, it was very homogeneous, limited to the GABHS infections. Um, but, but PANS expanded it to any type of bacterial infection, including Lyme disease, staph infection, um, mycoplasms. And then there's even been recent studies talking about how long-haul COVID can, can lead to PANS. Um, we won't dive too deep into that, but a wow. similar maybe a topic for another day. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't run across those yet. I, I ran across some cool stuff, but not not across that. Uh, so, so let's talk a little bit about pan. So, so one of the one of the things that's really challenging, and I think uh, the two articles we mentioned, the Swedo and the Singer articles, point this out fairly well. And I'm I'm not under the impression that anything has changed dramatically since 2012. There's not a smoking gun yet. No. Right. No, we don't have something that's either perfectly associated with um, acute onset OCD and enuresis or acute onset OCD and anorexia leading to weight loss or acute onset of OCD and behavioral regression, which is you know some of the things that show up in this syndrome. Um, n- no smoking gun. No. And, and so there's a lot of people trying to look at as many at, at this as a, as many ways as they can, and so there's some um, biological approaches that have been taken to try and look at this. Uh, do you want to talk about those, Carl? I th- Carl, I think you did the work on looking at the uh, the functional imaging, or maybe some. Uh, yeah. So um, the, one of the studies that I had run across uh, basically uh, found changes in. Uh, OCD between um, younger, those who are, have it earlier on and, and those who, who apparently have it uh, later. But basically it's thought to be a change in the uh, corticostriatothalamo cortical loop, which is the caudate nucleus, the orbitofrontal cortex, and the angul- ang- anterior cingulate cortex. Did anybody um, else just kind of Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> okay, so this is, this is normally, yeah, right. This is normally where it's, where it's found in, in uh, brain imaging. But for the, uh, it was actually found actually in uh, the thalamus of the pediatric patients uh, versus the palladium and the hippocampus in adults. Um, basically, it indicates that um, some of these changes earlier on when they're younger, uh, due to neuroplasticity, um, it, it changes uh, where where these are basically firing, for, for lack of a better term. So over but, time, we might see different places. Exactly, found. exactly. And I, and I think this wasn't just OCD. I think you were talking about this being specific to yes. what is considered to be pants. Yes, correct. And then this, the second part of this was, this is functional imaging. Correct. Right, right this yes. is... Was there any tensor imaging that you found? I can't remember that specifically. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I've seen any ten, tensor imaging. We've got a student that's in the tensor imaging lab at BYU. Maybe we can get him involved oh, nice, in something nice. like that at some point. Now, the other part of this is that uh, the laboratory work, right? Right. I can't tell you how many different. It may be this uh, antineuronal an- antibody. Yes. And and I use antineuronal antibody very very loosely because there's. There is ANA, right? Right. Um, and which is, I think, anti-nuclear Nuclear, body, yeah, antibody. Yeah. But there are a number of anti-neuronal antibodies. Correct. And depending on, on what lab you, that you're reading, and again, I think I found most of those with Quest. But even when I was looking at the article by Pavone much later, they were talking about anti-pyruvate kinase, anti-dopamine receptor antibody, anti-lysoganglioside Antibody, right? So these are things that I can't find in Quest Diagnostics as orderable labs. So, right. so we're still not at the point where anybody's able to tie uh, these with anything else. I think uh, one of the comments that's within the the 
the notes that we, as a group, put together, and by we I mean largely uh, Daniel and Carl, um, <laughs> the, there is a suggestion that the group B uh, glycoprotein surface has a lot in common with human cell surfaces. Correct. Up and to 50%. Up to 50%. And so when we start getting uh, antibodies against this group uh, B strep, it would end up that it's molecular mimicry. Basically, uh, your body begins to uh, produce antibodies that actually end up targeting your own cells. Um, and that's what actually causes um, some of these changes that we see. Um, I think, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, mm -hmm. but um, there's so many of these different markers that they found in this research. It's, it's hard to make sense of. To me, I think the only thing I saw over and over was we think there's a hint of this, but yeah. it's not really strong. Yeah. Or we found this, and it's strong, but it's also strong in Sydenham's Korea. Right. Mm -hmm. Which, at the end of the day, makes me kind of think that this is syndromic, right? That we're really right. still looking at Sydenham's Korea, right. but maybe more broadly mm -hmm. in yeah. some ways. Yeah. I mean, it's a do it could be a dose response, right? We could be back to that thought. The, the idea, yeah. Yeah. Daniel, you're smiling over there. <laughs> Penny for your thoughts there. Yeah, that, that's kind of the general impression I got as I read through <clears throat> all these articles and studies is that um, it seems like they would make headway in a certain direction and then the study would come out that said, uh, no, that's basically just Sydenham's Korea or we, we've seen different con conflicting results here and it looks like it's just looking at symptoms. and. Yeah, there, there were a lot of times I think that I saw that they couldn't replicate uh, those those uh, anti-nuclear antibodies mm -hmm. uh, or anti-neuronal um, antibodies. Sorry, I said there's nuclear. so many too. Yeah. And, and like the other thing that I, I saw in the research was that um, a lot of these markers and a lot of these um, antigens are actually all over the brain, and they're not actually in just these specific regions that are affected in patients with PANS or PANDAS. Which is why it's a heterogeneous exactly mm -hmm. exactly. Um, so, so I want to move on just a little bit. I, I want to point out just one quick thing that feels like is undone, and that is that there clearly is exacerbation. Like if, if we if we have a, a child who has this syndrome, and they're cruising along, doing absolutely fine uh, after maybe six months, the symptoms start to fade away a little bit. Like there's some evidence that you know these this thing wasn't that it wasn't like a one and done, and it's always the same. Right there was. There was fluctuation in the course mm -hmm. up and down. Um, it was kind of interesting the associations that had been made in what caused exacerbation of symptoms. Do you guys want to tackle that one? From what I had read, um, and this is mainly from the pandas research, is that it was incredibly hard to tie the titers together. Mm -hmm. um, when you would think that there would be an exacerbation, you would expect titers mm -hmm. to go up. Um, and you think that when it resided, uh, the titers would fall. Um, they didn't actually find this in a lot of the research. Really difficult to find, wasn't yes. it? Yeah, I think Marcelo said, guys, come on. I think that was the article <laughs> yes, that kind of yeah. uh, cast us versions on that. It was interesting to me, though, that, that it, I, th I think it was in both cases, parents came forward to Suido in the first case saying, hey, you know, my, my kid had this pharyngitis, and then boom, he had OCD really bad, right? Mm -hmm. and, and people started going, huh, that's interesting. And then I think the same association was made with uh, exacerbation of symptoms, 
I think a mom said, hey, my one son had pharyngitis and it bumped up his symptoms. The other kid said maybe his throat was scratchy and uh, uh, then suddenly his symptoms were worse too. And, and so there's a lot of, uh, and it's hard to doubt moms. Parental, yeah. Moms coming and saying, expectations. we think and there's something. Well, not even just expectations. Yeah. I think moms are clued in, right? right. And it's hard mm -hmm. to kind of doubt a mom coming in and saying, I think there might be something here. Something's it, up. Something might. It, and it's hard right. to say, well, clearly there's not. Just as it's hard to say, clearly there is. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, what's difficult with that, too, is if a child doesn't have increased symptoms during strep, the mom's not going to come forward and tell you that he has no increased symptoms. Right. And so there's a lot of sampling bias right there. Right. A lot of sampling bias. And, again, <laughs> our growling room here. I don't know if you can hear that on the podcast. <laughs> we'll probably hear that at least one more time. Uh, but that's maybe a good sign to move forward. Uh, so the, the nature of the up and down of the condition, right, right. It seems to ebb and flow. Right. And maybe there's an environmental trigger for that. Uh, let's go ahead and jump to treatment. So I think one of the things that's interesting to me is that whether or not this is uh, a real syndrome distinct from Sydenham's chorea versus a spectrum, right, whether or not that's the case, it seemed like there was a fairly quick jump to IVIG as a treatment. I didn't, I didn't ever find an article that said, hey, you know, here's what we're thinking. Um, we should immediately jump to IVIG. I think there was an article about plasmapheresis as the first treatment. Yes, yeah. And it seems like plasmapheresis treatment of this syndrome was actually related to treatments that had been provided for Sydenham's chorea. But right. I, I don't remember that for sure. Do either of you guys have some <clears throat> memories about that? Um, I don't have any specific memories on that. Um, it does seem like it was pretty early on that they jumped to plasmapheresis and IVIG. Um, uh, just from the research, it seemed like IVG, IVIG actually did a better job of uh, improving outcomes um, faster. Um, there is some questions about some of that research, but... How about um, if we tackle that? Okay. Yeah. So uh, we... I think I read at least two studies mm -hmm. about IVIG use. I mm -hmm. think uh, I don't think I read the randomized control trial. So so let's start with the two non-randomized control trials. Uh, one is Pavone, and who has the other one? Does anybody remember the other one? I think there were about thirty people in it. IVI uh, Melamed. At all Journal of Adolescent uh, Psychopharmacology 2021. It was, quote, an exploratory study, even though um, even though I th think that there had been other studies before this, right? There's been some exploratory studies before. There's been quite a few. And I think, so I, I knew so little about IVIG use that I actually went online and found <laughs> a, a YouTube video <laughs> about IVIG use in juvenile, juvenile myocarditis, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, very interesting because they had a, a, a young woman who had made the transition into college and they actually showed her hooking up her IV, uh, actually it wasn't IVIG, but it was an IG treatment that was I think subdermal. Huh. And she basically yeah. put you know four or five like catheters in her skin while everybody was watching and then she sat back while everybody everybody talked about IV or about IG treatment for these autoimmune disorders, right? <laughs> and I was I was relatively impressed with how 
it, it sounds like most of the fields are in the same place where <laughs> this might be the standard of care with some exploratory studies and without um, without as much information as we would like to have, right? Without gold standards, randomized controlled, blinded studies. So, so I'm, I'm under the impression that the people that are using this feel like they're getting a tremendous benefit from it. It sounds like it's the standard of care that people that are very bright are seeing some, some you know, progress with it, and yet we're still getting exploratory studies 20, 10 to 15 years after some of the initial studies were done. Kind of a, I don't know if that's a rand or just kind of a statement about here's where we're at, and I suspect it's very expensive to do these trials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some of the some of the major issues with IVIG, um, just to start off with that, is what what you were talking about was actually subcutane subcutaneous IG. It's a newer form. Um, instead of direct it, injecting it directly into the veins, um, they're putting it, like you said, under the dermis, and then it's slowly. Um, dissipating into the body that way um, because with IVIG treatments it typically takes several hours over several days so it's a highly I mean it's very long treatment it's invasive it's expensive and so typically it's not people's first choice of treatment because um, no one wants to sit in a hospital for five days with an IV in them um, yeah I, I think most of the studies I read were like two days so two 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 grams per kilogram mm -hmm. over 48 hours, or I think were the high end, and then one gram per kilogram was the other option. I think the, mm -hmm. the uh, Melamed article mm -hmm. was three sites, seven patients per site, uh, moderate to market or severe symptoms. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a six-month follow-up with a second infusion. They did one, let's see, six months, over six months they did it, one gram per kilogram, every three weeks, so this was a pretty common one. Um, and they were using the children's Y-Box, uh, and generally they saw uh, more than 50% improvement in this, and, mm -hmm. and they threw out a Calmodulin uh, two marker that they thought might be something that was associated with the blood they took. One, one of the things, I, I think again, we're stuck with this biomarker, Don't this is hand-waving still as far yeah, as we could tell. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing that struck me in this article and also came up in the, uh, in, in the video I watched was the difference in dosing is a big deal. So people that are brave go two grams per kilogram apparently. People that are more uh, cautious uh, more worried about how it might turn out, go one gram per kilogram. And, and those infusions, not only are they onerous in terms of apparently you're stuck in a hospital for two days with an IV running in you, right. it's what it sounds like, or at least an infusion center of some sort. Right. Um, headaches. Yeah. Yeah. Headaches, headaches, nausea. Yeah. Lots of headaches, migraines. Does that sound like the That sounds correct. And that was one of the uh, key reasons for the switch to subcutaneous uh, Ig oh. because it uh, diffuses slower and so it reduced the headache severity. Yeah, I'm sure that, that was, and, and I think that might be the the other thing about that is you can do it at home mm -hmm. as well. It, 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 I was right, amazed right. this this uh, uh, young woman hooked up the catheters on herself. And, right. And and I didn't understand the use of the word catheter. I'm used to something being somewhat more invasive, but I think that's what they right. call these subdermal. Uh, I believe you're correct. Uh, devices. Um, so that was uh, Melamed. Uh, reasonable outcomes. I think the Pavone study, I liked that one a lot. Again, not blinded, um, but the uh, Pavone study said, hey, we, we have experience with 55 uh, 
patients. And here's what we had, which was if you give two grams per kilogram over two days IVIG, 85% of those 55 patients got uh, somewhat better. 25% remitted with one treatment, which I thought was a pretty spectacular number. Right. 75% improved with two treatments. Correct. And mostly at the end of, of the study, of those 85%, mostly they had mild or subclinical symptoms, mostly, uh, over half. Right. Now, the other thing that was interesting was that they did a huge workup on this, right? They did mm-hmm. MRI, they did uh, titers of a lot of different things that are none of the titers that we've seen pop anywhere else. Right. They did EEGs, they did MRIs, all of those things. Great research. Great research. And, and it told us that none of those things seem to matter. Right. I think. Right. I think they did ASO titers and maybe a couple of other titers. Um, but, but nothing new in there no, that I saw. Nothing new, yeah. And the, perhaps the most telling outcome was um, after two treatments, if you don't have a response, you're not going to get it after the third. Right. I thought that was pretty telling. Now, again, not blinded. They're they're very clear to say it's not it's not blinded. We have limitations. We need more more research on this. I also thought the way they talked about the description of the patients was helpful, right? They talked about children who had regressed behaviorally. Now, if you go into a psychiatric clinic and you have a kid that has regressed behaviorally, that is responding. That's a huge deal, right. right? You have a kid that's suddenly having problems with incontinence, that's having anuresis at night, and mm-hmm. you're turning those things around. That's a pretty tremendous change. The number one symptom, and so so when we talked about the the required symptoms, either acute onset OCD, correct, or dramatic change in eating, mm-hmm. and then you have to have two of the following, correct. right? Correct. When you have two of the following, the number one symptom in their group was anxiety, right. Right. and the number two symptom was in aneurysis. aneurysis, and I thought that right. was just remarkably telling because I think it speaks to the the idea that this is, that this is a, uh, when, when you talked about these receptors or whatever may be affected in the right. brain, we might see these signals strongest at a couple of places, but maybe it's not only localized there. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I thought that was uh, very telling. The other thing that they did mention was uh, they, they said that um, cans and pans are now a bigger label and that pandas would be a subset of that. I'm not sure that I fully agree with that or that everybody agrees on that yet, but that's something that is out there. And the other thing that I thought was interesting was they said even though... Um, even though ticks really have taken a, a, a less important role in the studies or, or in the data as we've expanded to pans and cans, um, they talked about vocal ticks being about a third of the time in people who had ticks and upper arm movements being about 30% of the time and then blinking, whistling kind of rounded out the rest of the ticks that kind of showed up. And I thought just their description of these things were, were very... Much it was, better. It was, I liked the way they described... Uh, the patients. What I would have liked to have seen was a little bit more on uh, maybe was there some differences in who responded. Maybe that's a different article and we just haven't seen it. The Pavone group seems to be publishing quite a bit. This is a group out of Italy and I I suspect that more data will follow and I'm I'm looking forward to that. They also mentioned one other thing. Now this was an article that I think had a study and then had a lot of commentary around it. One of the things they talked about was the difference between low severity and high severity symptom uh, load. In the low severity uh, patients, 
Antibiotics and corticosteroids are the treatment of choice. Right. Only when you move up to the more severe do you use things like IVIG and plasmapheresis. Right. Or rituximab. Ha. Huh. And I started looking for articles about the use of rituximab, and there was uh, at least one case report of rituximab getting uh, leading to remission of symptoms in somebody who had uh, who was 25 and had long on a uh, long duration. Uh, PAN syndromes. Now, again, case report, we've already, I think, I, I'm not going to get really excited about rituximab when we're still getting, you know, basic data with this. But right. At least it's a start. Right. I mean, case studies, I mean, this should be a case study. It's case studies, right? Uh, starts off as a, a jumping off point, right? I think this is, I, I mean, it's at least we're further than where we were when we started, right? Where when we started was Essentially, Tourette's and OCD. Right. And I mm -hmm. think we're in a much better place now. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I want to go to the third article. Uh, Daniel, I think you took a good look at that uh, randomized control trial. Yeah. So it was a paramotor study in 1999. It was actually very early on in the in the whole PANDAS thing. Um, and so at this point, they're still, still using the PANDAS language. It hasn't transitioned to PANS. Um, <clears throat> but they took 30 children um, that, that met the criteria for PANDAS. Um, and they placed 10 into an IVIG group, 10 into a plasmapheresis group, and 10 as a placebo group. And what they find, found was that after one month, <clears throat> the placebo group um, had, had no change in symptoms, even though um, they were being treated with, I believe it was penicillin prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. So all the groups had penicillin prophylaxis regardless. Um, and then the plasmapheresis group showed um, a huge decrease in OCD symptoms. And, and ticks. And then the um, IVIG group showed um, reduction in OCD symptoms and also uh, improvement in functioning, lower anxiety. Um, but they didn't see much correlation with ticks. And then they repeated, um, they had a follow-up a year later and saw the same results. Um, kids continued to improve under the IVIG and plasmapheresis treatments um, with the placebo group not seeing much improvement. Kind of stuck. Yeah. Yeah. And what and what was interesting too was when they followed up about the 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 fact that um, IVIG didn't help ticks, they noted that the children that got randomly assigned to the IVIG group had low severity of ticks to begin with, so it was much harder to measure the difference. Okay. And so that wasn't conclusive in any way. It, it's hard for me to see that there's a strong difference between the plasmapheresis treatment and the IVIG's treatment, although, Carl, you seem to think that you ran across uh, research that suggested something different. IVIG. It seemed like IVIG was the one that, let's see. If Everybody used. But yeah. And I, Daniel, you seem to have some thoughts about that. I think you're going to say something. Well, I was interested. I originally thought that IVIG and plasmapheresis were about the same thing, mm -hmm. um, and so for anyone listening who doesn't know the difference, they're very different. Um, plasmapheresis is effectively um, dialysis for plasma. That's like the best way to describe it. You're taking the plasma, filtering it, and putting it back in. You're not giving the person anything new, while IVIG is providing them with, with um, immunoglobulins from other people, and that's what the plasma treatments are for. Now, the immunoglobulins from other people are... Um in theory, if I understand correctly, and I'm hoping you guys correct me, my understanding is that those molecules would bind the problematic um, 
either B cells maybe or leukocytes or, or maybe they would bind the uh, antibodies that are out there and pull those out of the system? How, how does it work? I guess is the question I, I'm curious about. It's a great question. I remember, yeah. The way that I understood bit, it and it's, yeah. was like, it, um, I think, I believe it's some of the antigens that are in there. But then also, I, I imagine it's also some of the complexes that are actually created from those antibodies on those antigens. Like your own antibodies to that antigen that's in your blood. Uh, that's how I understood it at least. I briefly looked at it because I had the same thought. Like, yeah. I, I've heard this, I've read this, I've answered it a lot on the test questions, but, like, I don't actually know exactly how it works. I think I remember um, reading something about it blocking, like, it binds and blocks. Right. But I don't, I truly don't know for, like the I body, truly don't know for sure. The body's reaction. So, when you bind, when an antibody binds to an antigen, then you have something that's activated by it, right? Like a... Uh, uh, macrophage or uh, some other uh, CD4, CD8, T cell. For antibodies are going to still be produced, right? So you have to stop I, the source yeah. of antibody production with this. Daniel, are you looking this up? Yes, just this is directly from PubMed, so <laughs> take it for what it is. This IVIG modulates the activation and effector, effector functions of B and T lymphocytes, neutralizes pathogenic autoantibodies, and interferes with antigen presentation and has a strong anti-inflammatory effect. I'm still kind of wondering it's, how it interferes. That's that's the yeah. question, right? Right. Yeah. Well, it sounds like maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, if it's IVIG that you're really after, right? It, it's it's the IG. It's the immunoglobulin G. Is it IgG? Mm -hmm. So if it's really what you're after, that kind of makes sense. It would bind to any sort of antigen that's floating um through their blood or plasma, and then stop it from activating. So for I think the IV, IG is IG. Yeah, it's IgG, right? IgG. Is what you're really yeah, trying to go after. Yeah, it's IgG. So yeah, so I, that's how I would understand yeah. it. So, so you're saying IG is going after, as if it's an acute infection and wiping out the acute infection. Exactly. Okay. I'll take it even though I'm still baffled by it. How's I, that sound? <laughs> that's something that will come up later. Yeah, one day when you have a lot of time, you can go. There's a great picture, and it even has a garbage can in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so I think there was also some of the research we looked at said, hey, there's a second uh, randomized control trial that is blinded, or at least randomized controlled. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this was blinded or not. Um, so, so there's at least one more out there that we didn't find between us, or I, if we did, we didn't recognize yeah. it. I believe the language they used was placebo-bound study. So whatever that means, you can... Take it for what it's worth. Bound study. <laughs> bound. Okay. Uh, so we've talked about identification of, hey, um, there's a syndrome that we think is associated with uh, group B hemolytic strep infection. It seems to have a waxing and waning nature. It seems to be associated with both uh, behavioral and uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms or maybe neuropsychiatric symptoms, our behavioral symptoms. Um, it seems to have some uh, overlap with Sydenham's chorea. Mm -hmm. um, and we now think that there are some treatments that can help alleviate severe OCD and behavioral uh, symptoms that are absolutely uh, destroying kids' lives, right? Uh, children who have apparently this acute onset syndrome that people are able to recognize in other places, right? Perhaps right. In, in tertiary care centers or quaternary care centers. They're able to, it looks like, turn that around with IVIG based on the, the um, uncontrolled trials that we're seeing, right? Right. 
Um, the next step in this, I think, is I, I want to pull in Chase. So when, when I talk to Chase, uh, one of the things we like to do is have somebody involved in the podcast <coughs> that's going to be providing or doing a podcast in the near future, right? And so Chase said, well, what do, you, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, we should probably have a description of OCD or motor tics at the beginning of this and have high yield portion for the shelf exam. And then I thought, you know what? I don't really want that because I think this is um, quite often during our podcast, we talk about some of the limitations of the data that we're looking at. I think some of the times we actually say, and that's the limitation. Now let's roll on and talk about the data as if it's all 100% accurate. In this case, I think there's th this is a great story of how selection bias led us to a, an understanding of uh, what we call pandas. And e even though it might not have been the, a perfect first step, it seems to have taken us down a pathway that may be meaningful in the future. But I think the second part of that is what might a different population that we selected have led us to conclude? And so, Chase, you, you did some uh, looking at uh, population selection for studies, and I'd be interested in your thoughts. What, what was it you kicked up? Yeah, you know, I was just trying to refresh my memory on the different types of selection biases and how they can influence your study. And ultimately, by selecting a group of uh, people to study, you're trying to make a group that is um, representative, right, of like who you're trying to study or the population, the greater population. Um, and one of the studies, I can't remember the specific study, but Carl and I were talking about this earlier, is the population that they drew participants from already had known conditions. Like, did they send it out to like the the OCD or Tourette's Foundation. Correct, yeah. They, yeah, they, so they were kind of like, you know, the, that was like a little bit of a, a bias that they were going for, um, going pulling patients from that particular group. And so that was kind of like one of the things we had talked about. I'm not sure, is there something else? I think that was the main one because I think the original diagnosis of pandas right. was heavy on OCD and tics where pans and cans has really moved completely away from OCD and tics to OCD and uh, dietary restriction or anorexia behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm -hmm. So it's a complete change in, in the diet. E even though pans and cans are the progenitors of, mm -hmm. no, progenitor is first, right? So mm -hmm. uh, pandas is the progenitor of cans and pans. Cans and pans say nothing about ticks being a primary requirement. Mm -hmm. So so it changed the this diagnosis dramatically to pull that out. Yeah. That was. Put much more eloquently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly kind of like what we were talking about. Did you find anything about other other cases or other examples of things that where, where we believed something for a while in medicine because of that selection bias, and then we stopped believing it, or there was a dramatic change based on changes of understanding of the population we're looking at? Oh man! As far as like a specific example, I, you know, we've. In like our lectures and things, we've talked about different examples of this, but like I can't remember anything specific, like a great example. I'm not sure if you have one, one I, in mind. I don't. You know, it's funny because I feel like it seems like we should know this, though, right? Yeah, <laughs> but you know, it's also it feels like it's something that's sort of common, right? You, you go out looking for something, and you might not necessarily uh, you find something. You don't know what it is necessarily quite yet. I guess is is 
was medicine. This, was this a confirmation bias thing in part? We think it's associated with ticks, so we're going to go to the local Tourette's uh, Society and, and pull yeah. people in with ticks. Well, one thing that I did read, because I was trying to take more like a, a board prep type thing or shelf prep, like higher level um, review of it, was like this concept of the susceptibility bi- bias. Basically, someone has one condition and you think that, that means that they automatically have another condition. Let me look at how I wrote that down. It's made a little better. But having one condition predisposes to another, and treatment for one is misinterpreted as being a risk factor for the other. So that's kind of you know this idea of OCD and Tourette's being critical to the panda's diagnosis, but in reality, the further we go with it, we're finding it's less less important. And that's called what? Susceptibility bias? Yeah, susceptibility bias. And read the definition again. And that do, and I think this does show up on your shelf exam, right? Yes. Not necessarily your psych shelf exam, but on your shelf on your board's exam. I board's exams, yes. yeah. Yes. So the susceptibility bias, the definition for that is having one condition predisposes to another and treatment for one is misinterpreted as being a risk factor for the other condition. Now, you also did a little bit of work looking at the difference between oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder. Do you want to, I know that we would normally put this at the beginning of the podcast. Do you want to just go over that quickly so that uh, your effort isn't isn't lost? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, again, just high-level, like, board or shelf-relevant topics. So, first thing, this is just the way I think of the difference between oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder. For me, ODD is a bad kid. Whereas and, con- and there's there's no such thing as a bad kid, so this is a child with... <laughs> oh, there are bad kids. Let me tell you, I've got a kid, and there are some bad kids. Okay, I'm rubbing my forehead, all the, yeah. all the medical students that I'm have I'm not going to go into before. stories about the bad kids, but they exist. My so, kid is not one of them, though. So, She's so an angel. No, you mean kidding. children that have difficult behaviors, I think? Yeah, children okay. with problematic behavior patterns. That's probably a better way to say it. There's really no bad kids. Just bad parents, no. Just kidding. Just digging, <laughs> digging myself deeper. No. <laughs> but yeah, so I have no hair left. In my mind, the the bad or wrong way to think of this is like ODD, bad kid, conduct disorder, worst kid. That's the way I kind of think of it. But really the the key things that you want to look at when you're going through a question stem is whenever you're it's gonna to try to ask you a question about oppositional defiant disorder, it's going to the child is specifically going to be defiant towards authority figures and that's like really what is going to stick out whereas conduct disorder they're also had they also have bad behaviors maladaptive behaviors maladaptive behaviors but they're specifically <laughs> violating societal norms or the basic rights of others so those are the, like the two things where like oppositional defiant disorder it's just really focused more towards authority figures like parents or teachers, but they may still get good grades. They're not, you know, torturing animals or burning things down. Whereas conduct disorder, they may have a lot of the same problems with authority figures, but they're also, you know, doing things that are infringing on the rights of others or going very far past societal norms. One of the things I think that I also saw as I was reading is that some of the children that were diagnosed in the at least the pandas group, but I'm not sure I saw this so clearly in the pans and and cans group. But the pandas group talked about ADHD-like symptoms, mm-hmm. and just to make sure that we're separating out the three of these, the the oppositional defiant children are going to have more difficulty with 
authority figures. The conduct disordered children are going to be children and adolescents who have disregard for societal norms. And the children with ADHD may break rules, but it's not necessarily the same where they're defiant, right? Yeah. It's, it's more get into trouble because you're fidgeting around, talking. The questions that I was going through, like a lot of examples said they were getting in trouble at school because they were talking or they were not paying attention. So that can be kind of difficult to tease out because they're getting in trouble at school and it's an authority figure that's reporting it, but it's not them specifically being defiant to the authority figure. For example, in one of the questions that I was going through on New World for oppositional defiant disorder, the child was like yelling at the teacher saying he didn't want to do the homework, whereas someone with ADHD just may forget to bring the books home and so they don't do the homework. So it's similar, both kids are not doing the homework and both kids are kind of getting in trouble for it, but the, the specifics of it are kind of where you can tease those out. Excellent. Thank you for doing the additional work on that and thanks for being a part of the podcast. Uh, would you mind giving us a precursor of what we're going to be seeing next week? Yeah, so next week, Brandon Brown and I are going to be talking about psychiatric medications and how they can be used in pain control. I'm interested in going to general surgery. Brandon's interested in going into anesthesiology. And so dealing with pain is something that you know is important on both of our minds. And there's a lot of indications with medications that are used in psychiatric conditions for different types of pains. But also beyond just like the pharmacotherapy, there's also different therapies, psychotherapies that can be interested or can be used to. So treatments pain. for pain that are not opiates, I think, is where we're headed. Exactly. exactly. Treatments that are not opiates, because that's not super interesting. That's been like, that's, yeah. Oh, it's super, pro- it's super interesting and super problematic, and we're going to try and provide some <laughs> alternatives, right? Yeah. Uh, I want to thank all of you for being a part of the podcast. I, I really liked um, the articles that we, we looked at with this podcast. I was very intrigued to learn how difficult it is, even though it was fairly, it seems like, relatively speaking, it was fairly simple to figure out Sydney Hams Korea ultimately was associated with uh, Group B strep. It seems like we've had a much more difficult time figuring out the association with what might be pandas or maybe that, uh, as we've talked about this before, that Sydenham's Korea is a broader syndrome. Wherever that ends up landing, I'll be interested to see. But I really enjoyed looking at that. I think I even came across one article that talked about why it has been more difficult for us to find that association with um, the broader syndrome. We'll see again where that goes. But I'd like to thank the two of you. Daniel, um, I'm looking forward to you letting me know that you got into medical school and uh, pretty excited about the prospects for that. Uh, And Carl, uh, looking forward to figuring out if you end up in primary care or in psychiatry. I have no doubt that whichever you choose, you'll be doing a lot of psychiatry. (laughs) No (laughs) doubt from what I've seen. (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's a lot of psychiatry and mental health. In fact, one of the interesting podcasts we've done in the past is the paradox of primary care, which seems to be that primary care physicians really have uh, about as good outcomes as psychiatrists in the uh, in the uh, mental health um, conditions that they're treating. So e- either choice, I, you'll, you'll know I'll be happy with that. On the other hand, surgeons, I'm really happy with that because uh, when I have my next appy, I'm looking for you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It'll be on the house. It'll, <laughs> on the house. Boy, I don't think you can afford to say that yet. Yeah, that's true. You got some student loans ahead of you still. <laughs> oh, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, so so I'll, I'll give you each a chance for your last thoughts. Um, Chase, last thoughts on this podcast? 
yeah, I'm just grateful to kind of sit in on this as a sidekick. It was great hearing you guys talk about this condition and kind of the progression of, you know, how it started, how it's kind of changed and morphed. And so, yeah, I'm just grateful for the opportunity. Don, thanks for joining us. Uh, Carl, do you want to take the next spot? Yeah. Um, I, you know, uh, I, I think this is a really uh, fascinating um, topic, actually. Um, it's, it, and I think there's still a lot to be done, which I think is what makes it so exciting kind of fun yeah Daniel last thoughts final thoughts yeah <clears throat> I actually have a, a thought about the confirmation bias that you mentioned earlier um, in in the original study in 1998 done on pandas um, a lot of uh, kids that have gab HS titers mm -hmm. or any signs of strep but they would just assume that they had strep to to meet that um, I guess homogenous mold mm -hmm. and so that there's an example of confirmation bias right there um, but I thought it was a super interesting topic. Can't wait to learn more. I think I also learned a lot about how research studies work and the limitations just as much as I learned about pandas. I think that's a great thing to learn. I, I do think, so that, as you know, this will go in the letter of recommendation. We, we are working on one together that describes who you are. And one of the things that's a lot of fun is talking about in the letter of recommendation. One of the things I try to avoid is, and... Daniel showed up, he was professional, and he never texted and drove, and right? <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's this list of things that, of course, you're, anybody that's competitive in a, in a medical school slot has already done all the things that most letters can speak to. And so if I can, in my letter, talk about the way you think about things and whether that's the right fit for a school or not. Um, that's my goal, right? And if I can describe how you thought about this and, and kind of the way that you, um, I think what I'll do is, is talk about the way that you had these questions, right, that would pop up and you didn't say, well, somebody else will answer that, right? You went, okay, well, wait a minute, plasmapheresis and IVIG, what's the difference, right? And, and that wasn't the only thing that you did that with. There were lots of different things that kind of pulled you down the rabbit hole, the curiosity rabbit hole. And I do think that the strongest characteristic that any medical student can have is curiosity. And so that we'll be able to talk about that in your letter and very excited about that. Appreciate uh, it. Gentlemen, uh, we've gone over an hour, which is pretty common. And thank you for your time. On that note, team out. Team out. Team out. Team out.